hello, good morning. My name is Shannon, and I am a sinner. Thank you. I'm uh, not proud of that fact, but I am grateful that God sent his son Jesus to forgive sinners like me and you and to reconcile us to himself, to his Father in heaven. And so, uh, hello and good morning. My name is Shannon. I'm a sinner. Uh, Welcome to this collective of sinners. It's good to be together. We're continuing this morning with our study of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, As the Gospel goes, we are in the last week, the last days of Jesus' life before his crucifixion. Uh, We we have been covering this uh, collective group of passages that kind of come after uh, Palm Sunday or Jesus' triumphal entry in Mark's gospel. We jumped over that passage uh, at 11, at the beginning of chapter 11, only to pick it up later on Palm Sunday, but we will. But the context of what we've been talking about the last few weeks and for the next couple of weeks during Lent is after Jesus' so-called triumphant entry into Jerusalem uh, during the last few days before his crucifixion, All of that is background and hanging over Jesus and part of what he is about uh, during this time. There's an intensity, at least within himself, uh, unlike at any other time in his ministry. So uh, before we pick up the Gospel of Mark, pray with me. God, uh, you've allowed us to be focused on you and your goodness and your grace and your truth as we've sung and as Gladys spoke. And as uh, we heard about the unreached people in Sudan, and as Kristen led us in prayer, uh, give us uh, the ability to continue and to remain focused on you, on your word, on your way, and on your will. I ask that you would give us eyes that are good to see the things you would have us see, ears that are uh, eager to hear what you would have us know and become and hearts that are fertile soil for your word and for your spirit. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word, that they be taken to heart. If my words stray or deviate in any way from your word, may they be quickly forgotten. In the name and in the character and in the way of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, beginning at chapter 12, verse 18. Listen closely. This is God's word. And Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus, and they asked Jesus a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring, and the second took her and died, uh, leaving no offspring, and the third likewise And the seven altogether left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died in the resurrection. When they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife, all seven. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you were wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. 
And over the years, I've done a lot of memorial services, and I've planned a lot of memorial services, and often in planning those, worship, those memorial services, I've worked with family, close family, sometimes even the remaining spouse. And I always say, we can read whatever scripture you'd like. You pick it, I'll go with it. Doesn't matter to me, I'll give you some options, but anything in the Bible is fair game. Whatever scripture you would like read at this memorial service, we'll do it, I'm in. And never once, not even once, has this passage of Scripture been selected. Never. I've never preached on it at a memorial service. In fact, I've never preached on this passage uh, of Scripture on a Sunday morning during worship. In fact, I have never, and this you'll find unbelievable, I've done a lot of weddings over the years. And no one has that same thing. Any Scripture you'd like, I'll be glad to use at your wedding. No one has ever selected this scripture. Big surprise. I would wager that that, in fact, has never happened in the history of Christian marriage and weddings that anyone has ever said, oh boy, let's, uh, let's choose that. On the other hand, uh, that not being what we are eager to talk about and think about, uh, on the other hand, couples, at least uh, those who have gotten married, couples uh, purchase burial plots or columbarium plots or niches for ashes in pairs, in twos, in couples, right next to each other, so that they, in other words, people who are married in this life, will be close to each other, well, for eternity. And why not? What else would happily married couples do? Is there someone else that a married person would rather their remains be near than their beloved spouse? Probably not. We are human beings. We are made in God's image. We are made for relationships. We connect with people in this life. Many of us marry. Maybe most people marry. And when one member of a marriage passes away, the bond that exists between those two people doesn't just go away. It continues in ways. And what did the scripture say about all of this? What did Jesus say? This passage maybe gives us the best idea. Let's take a closer look. In the immediately preceding passage in Mark's gospel, Jesus was approached by some Pharisees and Herodians, one of only two times that the Herodians are mentioned in the scriptures. The Pharisees and Herodians were religious and political parties, and generally all of the religious and political and cultural parties in Jewish culture, Jesus' culture, were eventually against Jesus and out to get him. In the immediately preceding passage in Mark's gospel, Jesus was approached by some Pharisees and by some Herodians who asked Jesus whether or not it was lawful for them, Jewish people, to pay taxes to Caesar, in other words, to the Roman government. We read and talked about this uh, last fall. We pulled this passage out and jumped up to it right before we were going to be talking about Commitment Sunday. You may remember that. The Pharisees and Herodians asked Jesus whether or not it was lawful according to Jewish law to pay taxes to Caesar or to Rome, and these Pharisees and Herodians were out to trap Jesus, Mark says explicitly. They didn't care about Jesus' answer. They weren't curious. They weren't planning to do whatever Jesus said to do. They weren't interested in, what, in doing what was right in Jesus' view. They just wanted to trap Jesus. They wanted to trap Jesus between the crowds who weren't at all fans of the Roman occupying government and their taxes, 
And the Romans themselves, who were always on the lookout for insurrectionists and rebels and people seeking to undermine their revenue stream. They're trying to chap Jesus. Jesus dodges their question by turning it on them and turning it back to him and asking them a question as he also often did. And so that was the passage before this. The Pharisees and the Herodians fail. Now it's the Sadducees' turn to take a crack at Jesus. Teacher, Rabbi, Jesus, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. And with that, this group of Sadducees had put together this little biblical, theological, legal quiz, brain teaser, trap for Jesus. And they probably had a good chuckle thinking, aren't we so brilliant, aren't we so amazing, aren't we cute that we came up with this very difficult, complex scenario about a woman and seven husbands. And at this point, it's helpful to know a little bit about the Sadducees and what they were about. They existed as a group, uh, a minority group of people from about the second century to the first century, second century BC to the first century after Jesus. Their name in Hebrew literally means the righteous ones. Pretty presumptuous, huh? They were mostly of and influential with the wealthy class of people. They were mostly priests or powerful community leaders who sat on the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin. They were thought to have been fairly Hellenized, in other words, influenced by Greek culture and thinking. They had cultivated a fairly good relationship with the Romans, the outsiders, the occupying government, probably partly because of their influence and affinity for Greek thought. They were sterner than the Pharisees when it came to punishments for crimes, which may be why they got along decently well with the Romans. They held a scripture, primarily the first five books of the Bible. So we, our Bible, 66 books, 27 New Testament, 39 Old Testament. Those 39 hold, held by most Jewish people. But for the Sadducees, they really only hung on to the first five. The books of Moses, the Pentateuch, the books of the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They thought all other scripture was less than those first five, which were preeminent, which came from the mouth of Moses. We were really the highest form of authority that there could be. They attributed all human activity to free will. They, they, they were the original Baptists. They were naturalists. In contrast to supernaturalists, they denied the supernatural and only believed in what they could see, hear, touch, taste, smell. Very much like a sort of a science-oriented world. Thus, they did not believe in the resurrection from the dead. They must have missed Jesus raising from the dead the, widows, the widow from Nain's son, Jairus' daughter, and Jesus' good friend, Lazarus. They must not have heard about that or been witness or privy to that. So they didn't believe in the resurrection from the dead because they were naturalists and they had this high view of Scripture and they didn't see resurrection in Matthew, or Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. But they did hold to a principle found in the book of Deuteronomy called leveret marriage. It comes from the Latin word lever, which means brother. And leveret marriage was a way in that culture at that time when there was no social security and no social safety net plans that a woman could be taken care of if her husband died. And so the brother, any brothers that, that her dead husband had, would have to help her provide 
for a child, to have a child, to have an heir, and preferably a son, to take care of her. That was standard practice in that culture at that time. And so using that idea from their highly esteemed scriptures, the Sadducees come up with this trap about a woman whose husband dies, next husband dies, next husband dies, still no offspring, all the way through seven husbands. They roll out their question. They want to trap and embarrass Jesus. And Jesus' response is, you're wrong. You're wrong. Now, the Greek word in verse 24 that's translated as wrong is the Greek word planon, and it means wrong. That's it. Wrong, incorrect, erroneous, not right, wrong. And of course, we don't generally talk to each other that way, do we? We're more polite, more circumstance, more circumspect, more sensitive, more in touch, more gentle. But Jesus says, you're wrong. And, he, and Jesus can say that. And Jesus says, you aren't just a little wrong, but verse 27, you are quite wrong. Wrong in every way, not partly wrong, not sort of wrong, but quite wrong. And Jesus said they were wrong for two reasons. They knew neither the scriptures nor the power of God. They knew neither the scriptures nor the power of God. And Jesus' response probably didn't go over well with the Sadducees because they prided themselves in some ways on knowing their scriptures, or at least their part of the scriptures. They prided themselves on being intelligent, well-heeled, respected, educated, especially around the books of Moses, the Pentateuch. As an example of their not knowing the scriptures, Jesus references a passage from the book of Exodus, which is a part of their scriptures, chapter 3, where in the wilderness Moses encounters this bush that's on fire, but it's not being consumed. And Moses approaches the bush, of course, to see what's going on, why it's not burning up, why it remains on fire, but not consumed. And Moses says uh, to this bush that speaks to him, Moses, Moses replies, here I am. And then the Lord from within the bush says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Jesus' point in highlighting, pulling out this well-known passage from Exodus 3 was to highlight what Jesus did say and didn't say. I am the God of your father, fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Jesus' point was that God did not say, I was the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, some hundreds of years before, when they were actually alive. But rather that Yahweh currently was, at that very moment, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, at that very moment. Because they, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, were in some sense still alive. Resurrection. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. These scriptures, your scriptures, the only part of the Jewish scriptures to which you have pledged your own power, beyond human power, 
that is greater than human power, a power that cannot be explained except by God, except through acknowledging and accepting that God is real and that God possesses power. You don't know the scriptures. You don't know the power of God. And you're wrong about marriage. You have misunderstandings about marriage, as explained in your scriptures in the book of Genesis, which describes the purpose and function of marriage when we think about it, to be to keep each other company, to help the other person, both of which can be done actually outside of the marriage and without other married people. But there's one thing that can be done only in marriage, which may be the chief reason or purpose for marriage. And that is to create or bear children and to populate the earth, which is only intended to happen in the context of marriage, in which God says to Adam and Eve, do this, do this. And in the general resurrection after that event and in that era, there will no longer be a need to populate the earth. The population will be fixed at that time. Ever think about that? It will be fixed. And Jesus says at that point, people will be like angels in heaven, neither marrying nor being given in marriage, like angels. We will not be angels, but we will be like angels in some ways. And one of those ways is not necessarily male or female. Psalm 8 says that God made us a little lower than the angels. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians that one day human beings would judge angels and so presumably have a higher place than angels. For when they rise from the dead, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage but will be like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am still, right now, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, because they're not dead, but the God of the living. Of course, this is not at all how some have imagined heaven and it's not how many people who have been happily married want to imagine heaven. Did a memorial service one time here where the couple really insisted that a song be played at the service that talked about the husband and wife dancing on a dance floor in heaven. And I wasn't sure what to do about that. Because we want to love people and care for people, but also be faithful to what is revealed in the Scriptures. The only opening that I'm aware of in the Scriptures or in the words of Jesus that might teach something different is that story in the 16th chapter of Luke's Gospel where a man named Lazarus dies and uh, a rich man dies and he reaches out and wants to kind of communicate with his brothers who are still alive and let them know what happened to him and to warn them. But other than that, there really isn't in the scriptures any specific example of people continuing in the relationships that they have now in exactly the same way that we are now in heaven or in the resurrection. You may have a wonderful marriage in this life, but however things will be in the resurrection, I can assure you that that life in the resurrection will greatly eclipse the joy that you experience now in marriage, the scriptures attest. You may have a rotten or difficult or trying marriage or have been in such a marriage in this life. And if that's been your situation, this passage may actually be hopeful to you. Ever think about that? 
At the same time, the scriptures would encourage those people to not give up on trying and working and seeking and healing and health and well-being and faithfulness and forgiving and understanding. But the biblical idea of marriage is, as we all said when we got married, till death do us part. Till death do us part. Until death do us part. And up until that time, we should live faithfully, joyfully, lovingly, generously, sacrificially, servingly. Made up that word. Absolutely in marriage. God gives us marriage as a gift in this life. Live it, enjoy it to the full, absolutely. And understand that beyond this life, there's a whole different vision of marriage and the resurrection. And that vision is of Jesus, a bridegroom, groom being united with his church in joy and peace and celebration and goodness and love. All of us united to him, the great groom. In the meantime, let us take from this passage Jesus' encouragement which is pronouncing truth to the Sadducees, you did not know, you do not know the Scriptures, you do not know the power of God. The church has fallen and Christians have fallen far too often because we have not known the Scriptures or we've known part of the Scriptures or we've known the Scriptures like the Sadducees selectively. I quoted Daryl Guter, the missiologist, and David Bosch, another great missiologist, Uh, a couple of weeks ago when they said the history of Christian theology can be summed up in our collective attempt to find ways to avoid the Sermon on the Mount having to apply to us. Be careful in managing the Scripture, not only to know it and to learn it and to be immersed in it, but to live according to it. You want truth, where do we go for truth except to the scriptures? You err, you are wrong because you did not know, you do not know the scriptures. I was talking with someone this week who does not know the scriptures and wanted to know, how do I get started? Uh, Paul, one of our elders, has been uh, pushing the 17 minutes, the, the Bible in 17 minutes on YouTube. That's your easiest, quickest, right, Paul? There it is. Google it. YouTube it. The Bible in 17 minutes. I have another friend who's in seminary, and she just put together a course, one hour to know the Bible. Of course, you really can't master the Bible in 17 minutes or an hour, but you have to start somewhere. You can't just buy a Bible and set it next to your bed and hope that by osmosis it happens. Learning the Scriptures is a lifelong journey and a lifelong joy. No one masters the Scriptures, but may we be mastered by the Scriptures. But if you haven't started now, take up some way, ask for help, join a Bible study group, jump in a couple of months late to our reading through the New Testament in a year together, you can still do that. God's word is truth. God's word is life. God's word is our only reliable foundation in this life. We must know the scriptures better than the Sadducees knew the Scriptures. And no one can do that for you. They can give you a Bible app. 
They can give you the Bible on tape. They can refer you to all sorts of great teaching material. We've got to jump in. You do not know the scriptures and you do not know the power of God. And right there, most directly, the power of God referenced God's power to raise people from the dead. Mark's not thinking of Jesus' resurrection, which is still yet to come. He's not saying the Sadducees didn't believe in Jesus' resurrection, though they probably would have had a hard time with that later on. But he's saying, looking back, look back and see the power of God as Gladys talked about. And Jesus raising people from the dead. Jesus walking on water. Jesus calming storms. Jesus healing the sick. Jesus causing the lame to walk and the blind to see. Jesus giving people the power to forgive, the power to love, the power to deny themselves. The scriptures over and over talk about dunamis. The Sadducees were naturalists. And if they couldn't prove it and replicate it, they wouldn't believe it. And so they missed out on the power of God available to us. Marriage and the resurrection. I wish I had sort of a a perfect explanation and word of hope and joy for everyone here today, whether you've never been married or been in a sour marriage or had marriage be the highlight and great blessing of your life. Jesus says what he says. But he also says, know. Know the scriptures and know the power of God. It is available to you. It is available to us. It is in our midst. If we seek, as Stephen led us in singing, seek first God's kingdom, and all of that will be added to us. Let's pray. God, give us a hunger for your word. A hunger for your words and not the words of other people. Not words of wisdom from earth, but words of life from heaven. And help us to know, to believe in, to trust, to seek, to embrace, and to live in and by your power through your grace. Empower us through your spirit to walk in a different way to live in abundance, to deny ourselves, to cling to you, to count on you and depend on you. You are worthy, you are reliable, you are good, you are trustworthy, and you are true. We praise you in Jesus. Amen.